And this particular verse, it's just one verse. It's not a passage. It's not a chapter. It's just one simple little verse, but it speaks 10,000 words. And it's absolutely so rich in content uh, that you could probably preach on it and never cover all of its impacting principles. It's just one of those amazing verses. And it's something that, honestly, it's not a verse that you would claim as a promise. It's not a verse that you would necessarily, around a campfire with the marshmallows and a hot dog, give up as your favorite verse. But it's so true of everything in life. It's one of those incredible verses. It covers every aspect of life on planet Earth. And it touches everything that man will ever get involved in. It's one of the most useful principles that you will ever find in your life. And it's an ironclad principle. I mean, there's no wiggle room in it. I mean, it is absolutely, it is what it is. And it will work in any and all areas of any child of God's life anywhere, in any culture, in any time in history, on planet Earth. It's incredible. And the verse, the verse is found right here, and it simply says, there is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Woody, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on us today? Father God, we thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and that, that sacrifice you made for our sins. Lord, Father, just let us not take that sacrifice for granted, Lord. I pray that you uh, let us open up our hearts and our minds today to the Word of God. Be with Bob as he brings a message forward to us, Lord. So hope us not let it fall to the ground, Lord. At the same Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof is the ways of death. Now, I always like to find out where things start. I'm a kind of guy that I'm just never satisfied with the answer. I always want to go back and get all of the ramifications to it, the hows, the whys. That's just the way I, I've always been. And I need to say that in the modern world of philosophy and science and psychology, uh, this concept of this verse 12 here will be called in a formal way of uh, epistemology. And that will be a study or a theory of knowledge. A theory and a study with regards to its methods. The validity of something. The scope of it. A study or a theory of what distinguishes and justifies true belief from just an opinion. Now, when you get rid of the $25 word and you come up with it as we use it in life, you hear it used all the time, you just have never really thought about it. But it's the simple sayings that people come up with that try to put everything in a very meaningful way for themselves, yet without God. And you've heard it many, many times. You've heard somebody say that if you follow your heart and your dreams, you're going to be okay in life. You've had somebody say, well, when you have a decision to make, you know, just listen to that still voice down inside you. Follow your conscience. You've heard him say that heaven and hell is just in your mind, that life is what you really make it. And that you've heard him say that God is a good, is too good and too loving to ever, ever reject a man and send him to hell. Or you've heard it this way that if you, if you live the best you can on earth and you do the best you can and you really try, you'll be all right. You'll hear, and I've heard this so many times, that there's many roads to heaven. 
just like there's many roads to a major city. I had a sister-in-law one time, we were talking about it, and she actually brought that up, and she simply said, you know what? She says, there's many roads to God, just like there's many ways you could have come from Kansas City to Ohio. I remember in World War II, the United States Marine Corps, they probably had it worse in that Pacific theater than, than the European guys who fought in Germany. Because at least in the German theater, there were places where they could be pulled back to England or they could get a break here, could get a break there. There was no place in the Pacific. And boy, when the war started in the Pacific, we were already behind the eight ball. We didn't invade Europe till we well had the means to defeat them. But in the Pacific, boy, they were, they were in at the get-go and uh, it was a tough road for many of them. Boy, you look at the great battles that they fought, like the Battle of Guadalcanal, which was one of the first major land battles of World War II and, and in the Pacific. And really was, believe it or not, that early was the determining factor. You have places like Tarawa, Peleliu, Okinawa, and then, of course, Iwo Jima with the famous flag raising that we all know so well. And I had a, I had a, the Marine Corps has come to the place where, because they have been through so much, they have got that same philosophy. And it's, you hear it all the time. I've heard Marines say, and when I get to heaven, to St. Peter, I will tell. Another Marine reporting, sir, I've served my time in hell. They actually think that going through those battles, and they were terrible battles. And I want to tell you, Probably war is the closest thing to hell on this earth that you'll ever get into. I talked to an old World War II vet one time and tried to win him to Christ, and he was an old Marine and been in major battles and conflicts in World War II. And when I began to witness to him and I told him about Christ dying and a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, he actually told me, he says, you know what, son? I never have to worry about going to hell. I can do whatever I want to do. And never worry about going to hell because I served my time in hell in World War II. And he actually believed that. Now that sounds good, but the problem with that is you don't go through hell. You stay there. Audie Murphy was a great World War II hero and actually one of my heroes in life that I've always uh, enjoyed and, and always had a, a great admiration for. And... Uh, uh, after the war, he made a movie about his exploits uh, in World War II, and it was called To Hell and Back. And we actually get the idea that, that, that hell is on this earth. And I'm telling you, there are some horrors in war, and I'm going to tell you, there will be some horrors in life. And people get the idea that that's hell. And hey, I, I get it. I mean, I understand but that Bible says there is a way that seemeth right unto man, but it's not right. And I realize that everything that the world says, it sounds reasonable. It does. It sounds good. It sounds logical. And from a human standpoint, it, it really makes good sense. But one of the greatest truths of the Bible, and it's so true in life, is simply this. What seems right is not always right. And I'll take it one step further. What feels right is not always right. As someone said, the road to hell was paved with good intentions. 
Now, <clears throat> you know and I know that there has to be one absolute standard by which we judge things that are right or wrong. And this is the fundamental problem with the world system. It has no absolute. And it'll tell you that there are no absolutes. So it relegates itself to a pragmatic approach to life, to what we call situation ethics. If it feels good, do it. If it feels good, it must be right. That pleasure and good is the highest order of life that we want to achieve. Therefore, what could be wrong with it? And, and you know as well as I do, a lot of, a lot of people with good intentions uh, and the best of motives will make some terrible mistakes in life. You take a nurse. We've got a number of nurses here. And nurses are, are, are really the backbone of the medical field, much like NCOs are the Army. But you know what? There are nurses who have made some terrible mistakes. I remember reading about a nurse where the guy died because uh, she gave the wrong blood type in a transfusion. She didn't mean to. I, I read a story where a guy went in to have a leg amputated and the doctor cut off the wrong leg. He didn't mean to. How many times do you find in an urban scenario where a police officer goes on a call and a, something happens and the wrong person gets shot? I've even seen and heard of situations where a SWAT team goes up against a drug house and somebody gave them the wrong address. And the dentist who pulls the wrong tooth. They're all good-meaning people. They didn't get up that morning and say, I'm going to inflict pain on people today by doing the wrong thing. They had the best intentions. And from a world's point of view, I get it. It seems logical that a man who believes in God and lived up to what he thought was right, that he'd be okay. I mean, every major religion in the world teaches that. And the world even adopts that philosophy. And I mean, it would seem that if all religions acknowledge God, and all religions have a Bible, and all religions talk about the cross and the resurrection and Jesus, you'd think that there was, would be various ways for a man finding God, that God would look down and be satisfied with the very fact that any man was trying to get to him. And he would just simply say, you know what? <coughs> there is a lot of roads to the cross to get saved. But he won't. And the verse clearly says that there is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, said, Narrow is the way, and straight is the gate that leadeth to life. And then he said, and few find it. But he also said, wide is the gate, and broad is the way under destruction. Jesus himself said, you know what? Just because you look for me, just because you want to do it your way and you want to come to God, it has to be my way. And the way and thereof are the ways of death. Now let me explain this. There's two kinds of death. There's a physical death, and that'll be an unsaved man that dies and goes to hell. 
But then there'll be a spiritual death, and that'll be a child of God that when he, he lives his life, but spiritually he's dead as can be. And you're going to understand that a little better as we come through here. Now, it's a fundamental concept of human nature that men and women, but let's just use it in the men concept today, men are so easily fooled. And they're always fooled, if you notice it, they're always fooled by the things that they love. How many men were ever dumped by a woman? And I know women were dumped by men, but, you know, I'm just it goes both ways. But a man will see a woman and she'll meet in his expectations what he wants. He'll never look at the inside character. He'll never look at the woman of Proverbs 5 or Proverbs 7 and compare her with the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. He'll see by his line of sight what he likes and he'll fall in love with her and wind up being a disaster. Men are fooled by riches. Luke chapter 16, verse 11, talks about the true riches versus the world's riches. Men will get deceived and and get fooled by possessions. They'll think that what they have is going to make them happy. They'll think that getting more of anything or a lot of different things is really the key to being happy. They'll buy boats. They'll buy three or four cars. They'll buy big houses. They'll be able to do anything in life that they want. And you know what? At the end of the day, it's all a pursuit for happiness. And at the end of the day, they all get fooled because there is no happiness in possessions. You'll see it in the Bible. You'll see it power. I mean, look at Pharaoh. Look at Caesar. Look at the scribes and the Pharisees. Men will get fooled by thinking that power is going to make them happy. I, I laugh at politicians. I, you know, everybody says, well, we got to vote for so-and-so because he's a Christian. You can't be a good Christian and be a politician. Because if you are, one, you'll never get voted in, and two, if you do, you'll be assassinated in the first week. All these godly professing Christians, I've never seen them out street preaching with Chris. I've never seen them on Thursday night Bible study. I've never seen them talk publicly about winning somebody or Christ. I never see him stand up and give an address and say, you know what? You know, I I mean, there's some churches out there that you need to be very careful of because the devil has a church. Well, you lose all your votes. Politicians are about power. I don't care who they are. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but my claim to fame is to be the fastest one in the slow class. And I do understand that there's something wrong with somebody wanting to be president or somebody wanting to be a senator or somebody wanting to be a congressman. And you will spend $300 million to get a job that only pays $100,000 a year for four years. There's something fundamentally wrong with that. And that's because when they get that job, they get what they think all the money they spent is worth. Tremendous power. And they can wield that power and make a lot of money, make a lot of influences, and they deceive themselves. And the only ones stupider than them are the ones who vote for them. And the reason that they are deceived is that they really, through pride, think that they're smarter than the devil who's going to deceive them. 
You know, I see that with a lot of God's people. God's people, bless their hearts, they just think in their personal life with their kids or their marriage or this or that, they just think the devil died. They think the devil doesn't give a flip or doesn't, the devil will never miss any chance that you give him. As my old grandmother used to say, you give the devil an inch and in time he'll become a ruler and he'll take everything in your life. And it's a, it's a thing where, you know, you get deceived by the very deception you're using to deceive somebody else. <laughs> I said, guys, I love this car. You've deceived yourself. <laughs> Woman says, oh, I just love this house. Oh, I love this dress. Does this dress make me look fat? I love this dress. If I told you the truth, you wouldn't love it anymore. <laughs> The deception is us loving things that cannot love us back. There's no profit in that. There's no value in that. And you know, it's so true that the reason why that we get deceived. Now, without a doubt, and this is a real tragedy, it's a constant maxim that the majority of the people in any generation, in any country at any time in history, will probably die and go to hell. And that's some hard fact. Jesus himself said, few find it. And they go to hell because of three basic things. The first one is that men fall in love with themselves. First, Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says in that passage that they're covetous. They're boasters. They're proud. They're blasphemers. They're disobedient to parents. They're unthankful. They're unholy. No natural affection. Truth breakers. False accusers. Hypocrites. And then it comes down and it says after a whole string of things, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Men fall in love with themselves. Now, everybody wants to look nice. And I think that you should. But... This goes for men and women. But you know what? If you spend more time on Sunday morning getting your outside body ready to come to church than you do your inside body, you're in love with something that's not right. And so because they love themselves, they all get self, they're all self-deceived. And the majority of people in this life that go to hell really think that they are smarter because they have been deceived and deceived themselves that there is a way that is right when it's not. And they actually think that they're smarter than Moses, Peter, Paul, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, smarter than God. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. So it becomes a universal delusion that man can save himself and justify himself by his own self-effort, by his own good works, by following the golden rule, by holy water, by religion, by getting involved in peace movements, by thinking that you can earn heaven by your works or going to church or the sacraments 
or just living a good life and helping others. Matthew chapter 23 and chapter 24 states the case very clearly that the quickest way to hell is through religion. And the second quickest way to hell is through higher education without God. To study the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. They all had religion. They all had higher education. But none of it had to do with God. Now this way that seemeth right unto men is put out by the devil to deceive the fools of life. Proverbs is a definitive book. You know this by now. On the wise man and the foolish man. So this great verse is put in this book. Proverbs will show you how a wise man never gets caught into these traps and how a fool always will. And in life it will appear attractive to look at. Religion. This concept of good works, doing good. It'll look really good on paper. It'll sound so good. Somebody said one time that hell is for two kinds of people. Hell is for people who never do anything. And then hell's for people who do everything. And they do it or don't do it without any concept of the Bible, Jesus Christ, as he is laid out in the Word of God. And the end will always be the way of death, physically or spiritually. This is the fundamental truth of life on planet earth and the counterfeiting of the things of God to justify ourselves, but in truth, will only deceive ourselves. It's simply amazing to me what people will do with God in the Bible. I, I, I sit back sometimes and I'm just amazed at what God's people do with it. How the clear Bible is clearly there. I love how to watch people, how they use the Bible and they're so right on the Bible when it's to their advantage. But when they want to do something else and it's no longer to their advantage, how they can step outside it and justify themselves when the same Bible that said, stand for this, is the same Bible says, you got to stand for this. Now the answer to all of this and to this verse will simply be, and I know this sounds so simple, but this is why the majority of the world and people who call themselves Christians are probably not. Few ever find it. <coughs> and the answer will be to this great verse of uh, being able to find out what is real and what is not, simply the principles that are found within the Word of God. And I know that is an oversimplification and it sounds so simple, but I'm going to give you something this morning that will simply be probably the greatest piece of information you ever got other than when somebody gave you the gospel on human nature when it comes to God. And uh, I can't impress uh, this on you enough. Remember, what seems right will not always be right. And what feels right will not always be right because there is a way that seemeth right unto men but their end thereof is the way of death. Now, the way you define right or wrong in anything you do is to judge it. You put it under a microscope. Now, I hear already the crowd from the cheap seats 
Claiming Matthew 7, 11, the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. I hear that all the time. Don't judge me. Well, I, I can't help it that you're in the wrong dispensation. That's not my fault. I can't help it that you're in a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 when it has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. It's a Sermon on the Mount that deals with a constitutional millennial structure of the kingdom of heaven. That is not my fault that you can't get that. My Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians, which was a New Testament church, in verse chapter 2, verse 15, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Now you see that's a contradiction. Bible says over here, Matthew chapter 7, judge not least to be judged. The other place says, he that is spiritual judges all things. Which one do you take? You take the one that is the dispensation that you live in. The church age. I don't want the kingdom. Boy, nothing like a Bible to clear up a seminary education and get you straightened around. Now, I must tell you this. I don't judge people. I, I never have. I, I really don't. I got as many issues as, as the next guy. But when it comes to my involvement into something, notice the verse says, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Didn't say judgeth all people. I don't have a right to judge you, nor do you have a right to judge me. But what I do put under the microscope is what anybody does in their life that I look and deem that's going to be a problem in my life. And I judge that. And but when it comes to my involvement with them, I do judge the things that are in their life as it pertains to me. That I don't want to allow that in my life. And when it comes to this verse, some things appearing to be right when it's really not. And here's the key. You have to use the standard of the absolute principles of the Word of God, and it will judge the thing not on how it looks, not on how it sounds. There's one standard absolute judgment in the Bible that is 100% foolproof that if you use it, and again, this is the greatest information you're going to ever get outside the gospel. If you use it, you'll never go wrong. And the Bible simply says, how do I know? What is, how do I know what's right and what's wrong? How do I know that this is on the up and up? How do I know this is really what I should be? How do I know that I should not hang out with this person? Or I should hang out with the person? How do I know? He looks good. He talks about God. He carries a Bible. They go to church. Oh, they do this. They do that. But, you know, how do I know? The greatest determining factor of whether it's real or whether it's bad is simply by the fruit it produces. The Bible says, by your fruit, you shall know them. And when you as a Christian want to know if something is good and the real deal, just be a fruit inspector. That's your standard. Now, I'm going to, I know that sounds simple. I'm going to even develop it more for you. The number one, but here it is. You got to get this. The number one aspect of true New Testament Christianity or anything connected to Christianity will be fruit bearing. That's the bottom line. 
When God made Adam and Eve, he said, be, multiply, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Adam's only concept and commission was to be fruitful. When God got you saved and he put you into his family, he saved you for one reason. The fruit of the righteous is as a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. You're to bear fruit. You bear fruit in your family. You bear fruit with the people that you're around. You bear fruit in your church. Fruit bearing is the absolute key to understanding if the thing is real or is it not. And this is real easy because in Joshua chapter 1, you're going to find that the Word of God, once you get saved, that the Word of God is going to bear fruit in three areas of your life. That Bible is going to impact you in three places. And when I bear, when I look at something or somebody and I have to decide if this is for me, this is what I look at. This is what I examine. When it comes to the Word of God, the Bible says in Joshua chapter 1 verse, 1 verse 8, that you've got to have the Word of God in your mouth. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 6 says you've got to have the Word of God in your heart. And in Psalm 145, 6, you've got to have the Word of God in your hands. So I just simply look at the fruit of what comes out of a person's mouth, what they say, what comes out of their heart, what they think, and what comes from the work of their hands, what they do. There's the fruit. You'll never go wrong. You can't fake that. You may have people who talk the talk, but at the end of the day, it's the fruit. It's the fruit. <coughs> and it's not just any fruit. It's New Testament, Bible-based fruit. You see, it, you're to be a fruit bearer. As I said, Proverbs 11.30. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20 says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravaging wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs or thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. But that's about as clear as it can get. Every tree that bringeth not forth fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, cause what I just said, by their fruits you shall know them. Now you want to know the validity, the truth, the real deal of anybody, anything that wants to have an impact in your life? Be a fruit inspector. Now let me define fruit for you. Obviously, when we think of barren fruit, we obviously think of soul winning. And I know right now, some of you good people here, but in this church for two or three years, and you've not yet won a soul to Christ, I know where you're going. I know, I know, some of you are leaving. I understand. I know, you ain't going to come back, going to Texas. I get it. That was great timing, Eve, great timing. But the bottom line is simply this. It's more than soul winning. It's your care and your burden for other people. You don't always bear fruit directly. You can bear fruit indirectly. The thing that makes 
and I'm going to brag on you for a minute. And I know you got your problems, and most of you are idiots. I get it. But I'm an idiot, too, and that's why we get along so well. But the bottom line is, the thing that I love about you is most of you, of not all of you, is the fact that you really don't, you're just willing to give to help somebody else out. And you're giving and helping that person right now without ever sitting down and laying out the Bible or winning them to Christ will probably be the key element down the line when they do get saved because you displayed the character and the quality of God which was giving of yourself to them without ever opening up your Bible. So it's more than just soul winning. Soul winning is a team effort. It isn't about when, because I'm the preacher, I win everybody to Christ. Or I have two or three of you that win people to Christ. Or you're just an avid soul winner and you win people to Christ. That's not what it's about. It's about that everybody in this room has a burden to see people come to Christ. And we all have to do a different part of a different job to let that happen. And it may take six months, three months, two years, four years. Uh, they're not here today, but so I can say something to them to not, no, not embarrass them. Darren Oring and his wife were two of the sweetest people on the planet. They would do anything for anybody. Thursday night when I asked to get help, Darren was right there. Darren stayed with it all day yesterday, called me, gave me report, and then had to get up and go to Wichita this morning, he, right on down the line. His wife's a sweetie. Uh, they're just good people. They're just like so many couples in this church, so many singles in this church. They just are really good people. And I love them to death. But you know how long it took to get them to come to this church? How many years did they play volleyball before they came? You remember? Four or five, Four or five years. Before they ever came to church. Three or four or five years of every time the volleyball came around, somebody made sure that they called them to get them, and they wanted to play, and they came, never came to church. We're not saved. We're into the world, but we're just good, lost people. Took four years, maybe five years. I know it was a long time. And they'd come to volleyball and go over to the deal, and I'd sit down with them. I'd buy them dinner some nights, and I'd do this, and I'd watch you people put your arms around them and love them. And you know what? And then Darren got saved. And everybody said, I don't even remember who won Darren to Christ, but everybody would say, wow, you won Darren to Christ. No, 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 no. Everybody for four or five years that had a burden for that family is what got that family saved. That's soul winning. That's soul winning. It's in discipleship one and discipleship two. It's in training others. It's taking them under their wing and helping them and explaining things. And you know as well as I do, there's people that come into this church who think they're saved and they're not. And I don't get up here and sit out in their face and say, you know what, I don't really think you're saved. <laughs> I have learned that it's a lot better and they accept it a lot better when I just love them, when you and I just love them, and then God tells them they're not saved. What a novel idea. And you know as well as I do that when you started to disciple them, 
When you started to give to them, they come about lesson one and lesson two, and then suddenly they said, you know what, I don't know if I've ever done that. And they get saved. That's soul winning. We get the idea that soul winning is just a spectacular standing on the mountain, screaming, and thousands just falling on their faces and trusting Christ. That's nice. That's good. They make movies about things like that. But in the real life in ministry, that's not the way it works. It comes with people just like you who have a burden for others who will pay the dues and pay the price to be faithful. And in time, they'll get saved. You know what you got? You got the word of God in your heart. You got the word of God in your hand. You got the word of God in your mouth. And it bears fruit. And everybody can see it. Everybody can see it. And in Christianity and in life, come on, you got good trees and you got bad trees. And you got good people and you got bad people. One bears fruit, the other bears the wrong fruit. It's just that simple. And the verse says, there is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There has to be an absolute standard for us to be able to determine, and it's fruit. Now, this is my favorite part. I'm going to show you how it works. I've got, and it works in a lot of areas. I've got some, some three or four examples here. And I think that it'll illustrate my point very well. Now, you take the issue of the Bible. If you haven't figured it out yet, we believe the King James Bible is the absolute perfect word of God. Inspired by God, preserved by God. Someone says, well, I don't believe that. I get it. I'm still your friend. I think you're stupid, but I'm still your friend. (laughs) Now, why do I believe that? If I didn't know that the King James Bible was the absolute perfect word of God by the hand of God from the mouth of God was the absolute perfect inspired preserved word of God any other way, I know it was because it is the only Bible in the history of the world that has bore any fruit. And the Bible says, by your fruit you shall know them. It has stood the test for 400 plus years. And it has bore more fruit in that time than any other Bible in the history of the world. From 1600 to now, during that time in the great Philadelphian age, three quarters of the world had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now that's fruit. That book bears fruit like no other book. Now, we went down to the World War I Museum here, a bunch of us, and took Jim down there and Kathy down there the other, the other weekend. And uh, I, think that's a, I think that's something that everybody that has any care about the Bible and history ought to do. It shows you how the impact of this book. And uh, at the beginning, they have a 15-minute movie. 
and it's probably the best 15 minutes you'll ever spend uh, as far as understanding World War II. And it will show us that the major uh, dynasties in Europe right before World War I, it shows you that America is really at that point a non-player. The real power is in Europe. And the real power is in the dynasties, the empires of Europe. You had the German, you had the Russian, you had England, you had the Austro-Hungarian, you had the Serb, you had the Ottoman Empire, which was the Muslims. You have Italy and you have France. America's nowhere. And Britain was the largest. Britain was absolutely, had more colonies, had the biggest navy. She was absolutely so far ahead of all the other empires. And I had to laugh in the movie. He goes through a number of things that tells you that why they were. And there's only one thing. It's because they had a book. And that book was this book. And that book bears fruit. And they had fruit around the world where the saying was that the sun never set on the British soil. And Great Britain is no more than a little island over there off the coast of Normandy. And yet they had colonies around the world and had a navy that was unparalleled. That was the envy of every other empire. All because they had a book. I told you before, her ships gave a new terminology to the world. They were called dreadnoughts. And I've told you this before. People hear that and don't even know what it means. It goes back to God with England. And the dreadnought battleships were simply based on the phrase, dreadnought, for God is with you. Boy, he was. And, and World War I was a terrible war. It was a war that really, and now you saw in that film that America and the world was in the industrial age. And the industrial age brought forth a whole new way of killing other men. So they got airplanes now. They got tanks. Artillery could shoot farther. They could launch gas shells now where one shell could kill 5,000 men. They had machine guns. They would shoot 6,000 rounds a minute. Wholesale slaughter, wholesale killing, to the tune of 16 million men died in World War I. Afterwards, in 1920, they wanted to end war, so they started the League of Nations. Didn't work very well because they had World War II, and then they started the UN, 1945. It hadn't worked anymore. We've had 600 wars since then. Someday they'll figure out there'll be no peace till the Prince of Peace comes back. But why did all that happen? It all happened because of a book. It all happened because of an absolute standard by which God was going to bear fruit through this book. This book right here, the one you're holding in your hands. And at the end of World War I, the empires are gone. Russia had a revolt. She's out. The Ottoman Turks picked the wrong side. They're done. Italy picked the wrong side. They're done. Serbs are done. All Europe is reconstruction. At the end of World War I, there's only one empire left, and it's England. And just by a wild coincidence, she defeated the Turk, kicked them out of Palestine, kicked them out of Jerusalem. And now the nation that bears the most fruitful book has Jerusalem and starts the process for God's people and fulfilled 40 prophecies in the Old Testament for those Jews to go back in 1948. How some fruit-bearing book you got. 
and it'll bear fruit in your life. It'll bear fruit in any church's life. That book fixes the fruit-bearing process. Now, there's a lot of God's people who struggle with the King James Bible. I get it. They struggle with it not being an absolute perfect word of God. I get it. I understand that. And I want to be the first one to tell you, most of them are not bad people. There's some bad ones out there, but most of them are not. Most of them are very nice, very congenial, very fine people. But you know what the difference is between them and you? I can't even put you into this. Between them and me, you have to decide for yourself. You know what the difference is? Now, when you go to the doctor and, you know, he checks you all out and he wants to give you a flu shot or he wants to give you this or that or he does some little procedure, he always tells you this. This is going to sting a little bit. So I'm telling you, what I'm about to say is going to sting a little bit. You know what the difference is between them and me who believes this book is the most fruitful book that the world has ever seen? You know what the difference is between them and me and and maybe between some of you? But you have to claim that for yourself. I'll tell you the difference. I want to bear fruit for God. That's all I live for. From the time I get up in the morning to the time I go to bed, Monday through uh, to Sunday, that's all I think about and all I do. And I know I'm a mess and I do a lot of stupid things, but I mean, underneath all of my goofiness, I have one desire and that is to bear fruit. And because of that one thing in my life or maybe your life, it just happens. I can't stop it. I have now a kindred spirit with the most fruitful book that the world has ever seen. The fruitful spirit of God that wants me to bear fruit draws me to a book that is the most fruitful book the world has ever seen, God's Word. They don't believe it or they struggle with it simply because they never bear any fruit. When you don't bear any fruit, Bible means nothing to you. When you personally don't have a desire to bear fruit, what do you care if the King James Bible is the absolute perfect word or not? The only reason it is in its final analysis is so that you can bear fruit. So you become a kindred spirit with some other book. I have never met anybody who believed an NIV. Or any new translation on the Bible. I have never met one in my life that was an active fruit bearer. It's all academics. It's all high church stuff. They will argue about they don't like the King James Bible. They'll argue about, well, this is a better translation. But at the end of the day, the reason why I don't get caught up in that, I'm a fruit inspector. And I look at the fruit. Somebody who claims to have the word of God but never bears any fruit and the book that they have hasn't ever bore any fruit. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out what I'm dealing with. Save 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And not one time have they ever won a person to Christ. All my life, I've seen kids who grow up, hit the age of accountability, 
at the very parents who get on me because I believe a book and they don't can't even win their own kid to Christ. You don't believe the book that I have. You think that we're idiots for what we believe, but when your own kids hit the age of accountability, you know what? You got to bring them to a clown like me who has a book like that because that book bears fruit and you can't. Told you it'd sting. That book bears fruit. And anybody who is a fruit bearer has to be drawn to that book because you look at all the other Bibles out there, there's absolutely no fruit. Not one revival. When Billy Sunday preached across this country, it was this book that he used. Well, even when Billy Graham, when he started in the 1950s and had great revivals, it was this book. And you know what happened to his revivals when he dumped this book? Now he has to tell all 2,000 people that are his personal workers. When we give the invitation, all 2,000 of you plant yourself out there in the crowd. And when I give the invitation, all you 2,000 come up and start coming down. You're going to really be personal workers, but we're going to make everybody think that thousands are coming, so they'll want to come too. I thought that, my, I must have missed something. I thought that was the Holy Spirit of God's job. Amen. If I ever give a t- invitation and some of you come up, come down here to help it out, I'll kill you. <laughs> It wasn't like that when he had the perfect book that produced a fruit. Now he has a barren book that produces nothing. So to keep your legitimacy, you got to finagle ways to bear fruit. God help us. Now here's the second one. By their fruits you shall know them. Which church should I go to? In the newspaper of the Kansas City Star this morning, they'll have a list, four or five pages with all the churches. And a big headline. Go to the church of your choice. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Don't ever go to the church of your choice. Go to the church of God's choice. You say, well, now how do you do that? Because there's a way that seemeth right unto men. Well, how do you do that? Check the fruit. Check the fruit. I mean, man, there's a church in every street corner in America. And that's another great study, the history of denomination. We had to do that sometime on Thursday night. I mean, you got Baptist churches, you got evangelical churches, you got Christian churches, you got Pentecostal churches, you got charismatic churches, you got grace churches, you got community churches, you got village churches, you got the Presbyterian church, you got the Methodist church, you got the Catholic church, you got the congregation, you got the Episcopalian church. I mean, there's a mess of them out there. And now I can hear, Bob, now Bob, you're saying that all of them are wrong? No, no, you're missing the point. What I'm saying is, the Bible says there is a way. That seemeth right unto man, but they enter over the ways of death. And the greatest way to go to hell is with religion. You look at the fruit. Now, here the Bible will give you the truth on everything. It never changes. The Bible, the reason why, one of the reasons I love it, it's the only constant standard in my life that I have that never changes. I mean, when your word falls apart, the Bible will be there. 
And when you're whatever situation, relationship you're in. I mean, if, you're, if your husband doesn't love you, uh, then, you know, then, uh, then your, your, your kids will love you. And when your kids don't love you, your dogs will love you. And when your, your husband or wife don't love you and your kids don't love you, and even the dog doesn't love you, this book will still love you. Amen. Everybody else in your world may change their mind about you. This book will not. Amen. Why keep it? Why keep it? And when the Bible takes a clear stand on some issue, I mean clear, doctrinal issue, and you find a church that changes the message or the doctrine of God to fit the changing society of the world, get out. Get as far as you can, as fast as you can, away from it. We have churches now that, that actually, that the pastor will stand up and say, we need to embrace homosexuality. Those people are, are people too. And yes, they are people too. But the Bible's very clear on it. Now, in that case, you just check the fruits. <laughs> Think about that one for a little bit. It'll sink in here while I get a drink. The Bible's clear on it. It, it blows my mind that a man would stand in a pulpit and give any... I'm not saying you don't love them. I'm not saying you don't try to win them to Christ. But what I am saying is, there is a way that seemeth right under man, and in the world's eyes, homosexuality is right, and it's not. Amen. Getting up in the pulpit and justifying it, telling your people that it's okay, that they're born that way. Why don't you just throw your Bible away? Get as far away from that as you can, as fast as you can. We live in a Christian world today where if Billy Sunday was around, he'd die of a heart attack. He's already dead. <clears throat> he he single-handedly brought in prohibition. The churches were in line in every revival in the 20s and the 30s to stop booze in this country. And they did. Now it's all through churches. Baptist churches, social drinking. And they don't even understand Deuteronomy chapter 32 and how it lays out. They don't have a clue. You know why? Because they lost their Bible and there is a way that seemeth right unto men. I mean, come on, a little bit won't hurt you. Moderation? I know when to quit. I only have one beer a day. The can is a 55 gallon drum, but what's the point? <laughs> You see it in everything. Gambling, women pastors, philosophy. Every church, every big church almost in this city across this country. You got a problem, you go see the pastor. They have a staff, therapist, counselor, philosopher to help you through your problem. No Bible, nothing from the pastor. They got some pseudo guy up there who's going to fix your problem with Freudian psychology. Sprinkling with a little Bible on top. Colossians 2 for that one. Higher education. Matthew 23, 24 for that one. Traditions and the rudiments of the world. Colossians chapter 2. These things are not the fruit of a New Testament Bible-based church with its roots to Antioch. These things are a Laodicean church with its roots in the rudiments of the world. And when the fruit of a Christian will not match the doctrine of the Bible... You got the wrong church.
Hence the push today to get rid of all the doctrine in churches. And yet doctrine is the foundation and the key to everything in the Christian life if you're ever going to bear fruit. And the third thing is religion. I call this, this the American cults. There's seven of them. You have the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, Church of Christ, Unity, Seven-Day Disadvantages, Christian Science. That's six. I'll get to the seventh in a moment. Now, these are what, if you know anything about history and have any kind of understanding, these are the American cults. These are the cults that were come out of America. All the other really deep religions, even though they're wrong, they come out of Europe or the Middle East. For some reason, all of the great religions, even the bad ones, are centered out of Europe because it goes back to that hotbed of Christianity in Antioch. America, I mean, if you're a Catholic, and God forbid, if you, you know, if, let me use an illustration. If you're a Catholic... And you die and go to hell. God forbid, I hope you don't. But if you're a Roman Catholic and you believe in all of that and reject the Bible and salvation and you go to hell, at least you're going to hell on a trimmed out Harley Davidson. I mean, just think of it that way. You can all get that. I mean, saddlebags, American flags off your little handlebars, leather chaps, big seat for your big seat to sit on. And just think of that dressed out Harley, rolling down a thing, flames on fire. That's how you go to hell. I, I, don't, I don't want you to go to hell, but if you go with a major religion like that, at least you're going in style. You go as a Jehovah Witness, a Mormon, or a Church of Christ, unity, a seventh day, or a church in science. It's like going to hell on a moped with a chain broke. <laughs> They're ridiculously stupid. <laughs> and most people have no clue. They don't understand that when America started in the 1700s, God had a plan for America. And God knew from the nation of Israel that if God didn't keep injecting himself into this country, that this country would never make it and accomplish whatever God wanted to accomplish. So you find in history of America, not Europe, in America, you find, for anybody who wants to read, you find that God injected himself into America from 1700 to the mid-1900s into what is commonly called, in, and anybody who knows anything about it, seven great awakenings. Seven great revivals in this country, starting in England, when, when Unitarianism began to come in from Europe, and God brought it in, and then moving east to west, through the Midwest, all the way out to California, by the middle 1900s. And you'll find that in every case, as God brought up a revival, a great awakening, the devil brought up one of these seven American cults to counter it. So you have one in 1740, cult pops up. One in 1800, a cult pops up. One in 1840, cult pops up. One in 1860, cult pops up. 1880, a cult pops up. 1920, a cult pops up. 1950, a cult pops up. The devil counters the seven great awakenings with seven of the most absolutely lame, ridiculous religions on the face of this planet. 
You say, why do you say that? Because they're the easiest ones to see that they bear no fruit. They didn't start till the middle of the 1800s. That means if you're a Jehovah Witness or a moron or a seven-day disadvantage or whatever you claim to be, it means that nobody, listen to me, nobody on planet Earth anywhere, nobody on Earth, nobody on Mars, nobody on Venus, ain't too sure about Jupiter, but nobody on Mercury, nobody in the whole universe ever believed what you believe because it didn't start till 1850 years after Jesus Christ died. No fruit. So you know why they scurry around doing what they do now? So God's people who are stupid will think they're legit. You see a lot of action, you say, oh man, they must be the real deal. They're moving all over the place. They have to. They got a lot of catch up. 1,800 years behind where nobody, I mean nobody, nobody believed what they believe. I'm telling you. Now the seventh one I say because it's what I call a Christian cult. It's the charismatic movement. Charismatic movement starts, I mean, they want you to believe that all down through the history of the church, people are speaking. Nobody spoke in tongues from the end of the book of Acts till 1900. The great Philadelphian church age, there was no healing. There was no crooked legs braid straight. There was no leprosy healed. You had people like Mary Slusser, who spent her whole life as a missionary to the leper colonies over in India. Not one of them did she heal. She ministered and won them to Christ because... The charismatics hadn't showed up yet. Nobody speaking in tongues. No fruit. And everybody sees it today because of all the goofy stuff that goes on. And they think, oh, this is, you are such a fool. You don't even know where they came from. I mean, it's incredible where people get into. And in all cases, you have absolutely no biblical fruit. For, for 1,900 years. You always spot the thing, my friend, and you see the thing and understand the thing by the fruit of the thing. Because the New Testament Bible-based Christianity is based on fruit-bearing and will always associate it with the things of God that bear fruit. And when you don't, stay away from it. I don't care how nice the guy is who's a pastor. I've had people say, well, I just can't leave that church because the pastor is so nice. Let me tell you something. The nicest man you would ever meet in your life will be the devil. Read Job 40, 41. He'll speak soft things to you. He'll speak comforting things to you. He'll play with you. He'll be so nice to you because he knows better than you do there's a way that seemeth right unto men, but their end thereof are the ways of death. And he knows the quickest way to get you in hell is through religion. Second way is through higher education. Now you look at any Christian. Now I'm 65 years and I'm an old man, and you know I, I but I have observed some things. I mean, I, mean, I, I am. I get it. I mean, uh, my softball days are coming to an end. I know, I know. You know you're in bad shape when you go to the gym, and it's harder to get out of the machine than it is to do the exercise when you're in it. (laughs) 
But you know, I, I've watched some things over the years. And I want to say something to you. And this really speaks well of our church. So, uh, you know, I mean, many times uh, people, people will cause major problems in a church. I talked to a pastor last week and he told me he had a business meeting with the, with the people. And he said, he was laughing and he said, man, he said, the thing broke into a real fight. He said, I, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, what happened, man? He said, well, this church is 100 years old. The average age in it is 75. He says, some of the ladies wanted to start a kitchen, a pantry to give food to people. So we had a business meeting. They got to have a business meeting about everything. How thick the toilet paper is going to be. They have to have a business meeting on it. He says, it turned, Bobby, it turned into the biggest fight you ever saw in your life. He says, the trustees had their cups here. The deacons had their cups here. And the church members had their cups here. And they fought over moving their cups and intermingling the trustees' cups with the deacons' cups with the people's cups. And it broke into a fight. He said, I thought I was back as a judge in divorce court trying to mediate between who gets the picture frame and who gets the dog. He says it was absolutely unbelievable. I've known churches that split because they decided to get new choir robes and the church was split on the color of the choir robes. So they went ahead and got this color and half the people left the church over the color of the choir robes. I'm telling you. And in 40 plus years of ministry, I'm telling you, the people who cause problems, the major one, will always be the folks that never bear any fruit. Not a stick. Folks who bear fruit will never give you problems, ever. Because their focus is not on themselves, but the souls of others. And the greatest drive they have is to bear fruit for God. And those things don't matter to them. You know, in the Bible, we're likened to a husbandman. A husbandman is someone who takes care of a vineyard. And when a person takes care of this vineyard with me, and you become a husbandman, you tend to the well-being of the vineyard for one reason. You want to produce as much fruit of that vineyard as you can. And you're not concerned about the drinking cups, the color of the choir robes, who does this, who does that. So-and-so was sitting in my seat. I've known people in churches that their granddaddy built the bathroom and granddaddy had been dead now for 30 years and they protect that bathroom like granddaddy's still sitting in it. <laughs> Didn't think of how I said that. That's pretty funny. <laughs> A husbandman bears fruit. He makes sure that the vineyard gets pruned. It gets watered. It gets everything it needs because the one goal in his life is for that vineyard, this vineyard, to bear fruit. Amen. Rest doesn't matter. That's where your focus is. Every Christian will wear one of two t-shirts. One will say, look at me. The other one will say, look at Christ. Christians who get saved, and then they'll put limitations on what they're going to do for God. 
They get saved and then they put limitations on how far they'll go or how far they'll grow with what they'll do. And I must tell you, you only go for God to the extent that you're willing to grow for God. And Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says that we're to, if, we're, if, we're, if we're risen with Christ, we need to set our affections on those things which are above. Matthew 7, 21 says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Bible makes it very clear that any tree can bear two kinds of fruit. We saw it in Matthew 7, 17. Every good tree beareth good fruit, and every corrupt tree beareth evil fruit. And by your fruit you shall know them. And Christians are like trees. A tree of life or a tree of knowledge of good and evil. A Christian will bear fruit or he'll just put out knowledge. And you know, in the Old Testament, in Genesis 1, when God created everything, do you ever look at the trees? In Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed in itself upon the earth, and it will show. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. His kind. Now do you see that? Verse 11. That fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. That tree is a picture of Christ. He's the olive tree. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 11. Whose seed is in itself. That's the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 16. When it deals with the work of the Holy Spirit. And as a child of God. When you and I get saved after his kind Christ. You now have the seed of the Word of God that's sowed inside you, and the Holy Spirit of God takes that seed and reproduces other trees, other young Christians. The reason why God's people never bear any fruit is simple. You're saved, but you have not the seed of the Word of God inside you. You're filled up with worldly things. There's no storehouse of the Word of God. There's nothing in your mouth, there's nothing in your heart, and there's nothing in your hand that will produce fruit. The more Bible you get inside you, and this is why I give you the Bible every time I can, every way I can, every chance I can, and every direction I can. The more Bible you get inside you, the more you become like his kind, and in time you bear fruit of the tree of life. You don't just become a tree of knowledge and good and evil where you just put out information. My advice, just mine, Stay away from non-bearing trees that don't bear any fruit. In any life, no matter how good it looks, it sounds, it smells, it tastes, remember rule number one of life. There is a way that seemeth right unto men, but their end thereof in the ways of death. And the only way, the only absolute way to find out the real from the phony is by their fruits. And the Bible says, by your fruits, you shall know them. You know, years ago, I think it was around 1955, I'd have been five years old, in Maslin, Ohio. I lived in Canton. Maslin was like Raytown and Kansas City, right next to each other. And in 1955, there was a terrible fire in Maslin, Ohio. And it engulfed a, 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 one of those wood frame houses that was built during the war. And it, it, it went up really quick. And the, by the time the fire department got there, the house was really ablaze. And the mother was outside uh, hysterical. 
And the first truck pulled up and the police rolled up there, you know, and the rest of the trucks were on their way. And this woman was hysterical. The fact that her, her little baby a girl, a six-month-old, uh, she couldn't get to her because of the fire and because of the heat. And uh, she was hysterical, begging somebody to do it. Well, one fireman looked at the other fireman, and they doused themselves with water, and they ran into that burning building. The heat was so intense, the smoke was so thick, they found the stairs, the fire was all around them, pieces of the ceiling were falling down, they went up that stairs and got to the top, and the smoke was so thick, they had to crawl on their stomachs underneath it to try to keep some air. And they moved along that way, and the one fireman got so, he had to, he had to go back, and he left to try to get some more help, but the one fireman in the lead, he kept on going. He found, he looked up, and he could see the, what he thought was the baby's room with his little things on it, you know, and he pushed that door open, and the smoke bellowed out and he couldn't get up. He had to stay down and he reached over there and he, he found in the, he couldn't see, he found the crib and he reached up and he was searching for that baby and he found that little baby laying there and he grabbed that little baby and put it into his jacket and he began to crawl back out and rolled out, got to the steps and the f- ceiling was falling down. The steps had now caught on fire and he come down those steps and some of his pants was on fire and he got out there and they, and they walked out the door and, they, and he ran out the door and the fire hoses were all over him and they, people were cheering and the key TV cameras were there and reporters were there and everybody is just so thankful they got that baby out of that burning house and he walked up there and he opened up that, that jacket to bring it out and the mother came over and hugged the guy and grabbed that little baby and opened it up and she screamed and she fainted in the, in the terrible darkness of that place with the fire and the heat and everything that was going on that he couldn't see when he reached up into that crib he grabbed the baby doll instead of the baby and that baby burned to death and I tell you that to tell you this, folks. There's a lot of people out there who's got the wrong Jesus. And their intentions are good. Their intentions were just as good, if not better, than that fireman that risked his life to go in and save that, but he got the wrong baby. And there's people who go to church. There's people who go religiously every Sunday and do everything they're supposed to do. And they think it's the right thing. And they don't understand that there is a way that seemeth right unto men, but they're in thereof are the ways of death. And the only way you can ever determine what is real and what is phony is by the book that God gave you that is the only absolute standard that you have. And there's a lot of God's people out there that have the wrong Bible, just like a lot of unsaved people have the wrong Jesus. And they get deceived. And they lose out on everything that God has for them and they're going to wind up at the judgment seat of Christ and the fire of the judgment seat of Christ is going to devour all the guys has for them, just like the fire devoured that house in 1955 in Maston, Ohio. There is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death.